The Williams Tower, which is formerly known as the Transco Tower, is the fourth tallest building in Texas and the 22nd tallest building in the United States. It's certainly a Houston landmark. They show it on all the sporting events when they come to town, and I think it's a very beautiful building over in the Galleria. I remember very well the night that they were pouring the foundation for that building. For weeks before that night, crews had worked endlessly taking load after load after load of dirt from where they were going to pour the foundation. The night of the pour, traffic had to be rerouted in the Galleria area because of all the trucks that lined up. As far as you could see, trucks were lined up, and they were all running. And what I was told, they had to go in a consecutive order. There couldn't be any interruption. Otherwise, they may have to tear out. If there was an interruption, they may have to stop, tear out the whole foundation, and start over again. One of the things that struck me from that whole process in watching it the first one was how deep that hole was, but how significant the foundation was for the Transco Tower. Without a significant foundation, there's not going to be a significant building on top of it. Serious structures require serious foundations. Living in this part of the country, most of us are aware of this, I think. It's rare to turn on the radio and not hear a commercial for foundation repair companies. You don't have to be an architect or a builder of some sort to spot signs of foundation problems, just listen to the commercials. Cracked walls, sticking doors, maybe signs that you need foundation repair. Just as the quality of a foundation will go a long way toward determining the quality of the building that's built upon that foundation, the quality of a foundation of a local church will go a long way toward determining the quality of the church itself. There seem to be many options out there today for foundations for the local church. And I'm not speaking of the building right now. I'm speaking of the church itself. Some try to build a local church around a strong youth program. Others on an outstanding music ministry. Still others on social life or small groups. Those are all fine things and necessary things, but they're not proper foundations, as we'll see this morning in our text. Of course we want a solid youth program. Yes, we should have an outstanding music ministry that's quality music ministry. And quality personal interaction is certainly something that we desire. But those things aren't foundational. They're necessary, but not foundational. There's only one foundation upon which a local church can properly be built, and that's the subject of our lesson this morning. Read with me now in verses 10 through 15 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise builder, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building upon it. But let each man be careful how he builds upon it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built upon it, remains, he shall receive a reward." If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, 
but he himself shall be saved, yet as though through fire. The foundation of any local church must be Jesus Christ. And I know that that, goes, that sounds so axiomatic that it really should go without saying. Of course it's Jesus. Of course the foundation is Jesus. I know that. Everybody knows that. I'm not so sure. The Corinthians didn't know it. They were attempting to build the local church at Corinth on a foundation of intellectualism and philosophy. A foundation that happened to be consistent with the cultural norms of their day. It's almost as if they surveyed the citizens of Corinth and said, what's it going to take to get people into this church today? Intellectualism and philosophy. Well, let's do that then. In verse 10, Paul speaks of the grace of God. According to the grace of God which was given to me. Grace is, of course, unmerited favor. It's by definition undeserved. If there's anybody that ever understood grace... It's the Apostle Paul. I think there are two people that perhaps, maybe three, that might have understood grace better than anybody that have ever lived. If there are three, I would put Moses, David, and the Apostle Paul. If there are four, I'd put the Apostle Peter. There's something that, that each of those has in common. They all failed greatly. And by the grace of God, they came back. Paul certainly had failed greatly. He had a sordid past. He would persecuted the church and worked against the very Lord that he was now serving. Yet God still used him. That's grace. And Paul was grateful for God's grace. He knew that any success that he had in Corinth was not his own. It wasn't his own doing. It was God's doing. Because of the grace of God, Paul was able to lay a foundation when he visited Corinth. And then a man named Apollos built upon that foundation. And that's a good thing. You remember back in chapter 1, there's this argument that's going on in Corinth. Who do they prefer? Well, I prefer, prefer Paul. Well, I prefer Apollos. I prefer Cephas. And then there's this group that says, I prefer Christ. That sounds good, but we later found out that, that they weren't really that spiritual, even those who were saying that. Earlier on, Paul has also said, I planted and Apollos watered. Now he's going to shift from that agriculture metaphor to an architectural metaphor. The foundation that Paul built was Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He preached Jesus crucified and resurrected. In fact, we know what message he taught, what message he brought to Corinth when he first came, because it's at the end of this letter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he tells us what the foundation was. And this is it. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, and also you received, in which you stand. Remember, this is the foundation that he laid. By which also you were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle. 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God within me, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and you believed. That's the foundation. I love it because he tells us just what it was. That's the message that he brought to the Corinthians. That's the foundation. So when we speak of the foundation being Jesus Christ, that's what we're talking about. The person of Jesus Christ and the message of Jesus Christ. The message that the Corinthians, at least the Corinthians in their culture, thought was foolish. So it would not make sense to build the church in Corinth on the wisdom of men, something that they something that had no power with it whatsoever. The church at Corinth had to be built on the wisdom of God, the power of God, which is found in Jesus Christ and the message of the gospel. I agree, that sounds so axiomatic. It sounds so simple and straightforward that you may be wondering, why is he even talking about that? Why does Paul even have to bring it up? Fact is, if you have any connection with the Christian community out there today at all, you know that it's not so axiomatic. There are many churches today that are attempting by design, by philosophy of ministry, to build a foundation on something else. And Paul would say, nice try, but you got the cart before the horse. Now, if you got a horse, it's okay to have a cart. It's necessary to have a cart. If you're building a building, we want windows and we want doors. We want appliances. But those don't make a good foundation. And Paul's not saying the foundation is all there is. He's not saying that the gospel is all there is to a good Christian church. But he's saying that's where it's got to start. And if we don't have a good gospel, then it's not going to be a solid church. The foundation that Paul laid is the foolishness about what he, about what he spoke in the first chapter. The wisdom of God was foolishness. To the natural man. We learned a couple lessons ago. In verse 18 of chapter 1, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 11 appears to be evidence that Paul is addressing an argument directly put forth by the Corinthians themselves. When we started 1 Corinthians, we spoke of a term called a mirror reading. A mirror reading is the answer to a presumed question. If I was to say, I'm going to go to the game at 1230, that's an answer. If, if that's all you had in writing, we might be able to deduce, with relative certainty, what the question was. Somebody must have asked me, well, what time are you going to go to the game? That's all we're talking about when we talk about a mirror reading. And in 1 Corinthians, we're going to see mirror readings all the time. We're going to see answers to questions, and then we've got to go back and kind of figure out what the question was. But in verse 11, we seem to have the answer or a declarative statement to a presumed question that they must have asked. They must have asked some sort of question about, is it okay that we build the foundation of this church? They might not have put it that way, but practically speaking, is this a decent foundation? And again, back in those days, it might not have been a good solid youth ministry or great music or great personal interaction. It was probably philosophy and intellectualism. Is that okay? You see, what they might have done was draw them in with the philosophy and the intellectualism and then slowly kind of switch it around to where it's a message about Jesus Christ. If we did that in business, you know what that's called? 
bait and switch. And it's a negative term. If we bring them in on one pretense and then sell them something else, it happens all the time, but we really kind of look down on that as a culture. This is not the best thing. We'd like to have some honesty in advertising. And when we bait and switch, it's not honesty, whether it takes place at a car dealership or whether it takes place in a church. The power of Christianity is in Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's got to be the foundation. And I wish it was axiomatic, but it's not. And that's a sad thing. Now, I don't say this to have you be judgmental about other churches. Please don't take that as the application. I think that's so unlovely when, we, when this church or any other church starts judging other churches. I say that so that we can hold this church to the fire. So that we can make sure that this church always has a solid foundation in Jesus Christ. This, that's what we mean by Christ-centered ministry. That's on our, on our sign outside of the other campus on the east side. A Christ-centered ministry. Somebody drove by one time and said, what's a Christ-centered ministry? It was an, that was a new idea for them. What, they, what we mean by that is the foundation of this church is Christocentric. It's based upon Jesus Christ. Not on us. And not on anything else that might be legitimate that sets on top of that foundation. The Corinthians preferred to build a church around the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of God. But that's been Paul's point from chapter 1. The wisdom of the sophists and the philosophers is just the best effort of unregenerate man trying to make sense of this world. And they do a pretty good job. Trying to do so without God, a lot of them do a great job of trying to make sense out of this world. That's the job of philosophy. But they can't do it apart from God. Their best efforts can't do it apart from God. And it's sad, really. Really, what philosophy is, in a big way, is the result of people who refuse to humble themselves before God, at the same time using the intellect that God gave them to rebel against him. Does it really make any sense at all to build a church whose purpose is to glorify God on a foundation of wisdom that comes from people who are rejecting it? In Paul's day, the philosophers there rejected it. Why would we want to build a church based upon the philosophy of those who are rejecting the one that we're worshiping. It doesn't make any sense. Now, by the way, let me, let me put a, a parenthesis here. There's nothing wrong with a study of philosophy. And I think more Christians should study philosophy so that we can interact with the philosophers just like the Apostle Paul did and not be intimidated by philosophy. So I'm not, I'm not saying Christians should shy away from philosophy. I think more Christians should study philosophy in order to defend the faith in a more appropriate way so that we can talk their language. But we don't build, we do not build a local church on that. I have no doubt that the intentions of the Corinthians were noble. After all, they probably reasoned. We can draw people in by giving them something they're used to. And then we can slowly present them with the truth. We need to accommodate our message to the audience. I don't know how many times you've heard that. We need to accommodate our message to the audience. No, a thousand times no. We may accommodate our methods to the audience, but not the message. The method, yes, not the message. And I see that when I travel all over the world. Perhaps you've seen it too when you, when you visited other cultures. 
There are certain things, when I preach in India, for example, that are cultural there that have nothing to do with the message, but they have to do with the method, and I ascribe to their method. I have no problem with their method, as long as it's not dishonoring to God. One, one thing about it is they don't like for, for me or for anybody else that I'm with to preach in a coat and tie. So I take the tie off. And after being in 105 degrees with no air conditioning for about 20 minutes, I'd take the coat off too. And if I was a little better shape, I'd probably take my shirt off too. I mean, it's that hot. I probably wouldn't because that wouldn't be cultural. At the same time, though, in Africa, where it's just as hot most of the time, at least in Lagos, I preach in a coat and tie. Because every one of those men out there has a coat and tie on. They may have sweat dripping down their forehead and onto their cheeks, they still have their coat and tie on. So I put my coat and tie on. Now this is just a real small thing. Sometimes music has to be accommodated. The music in Africa is different from the music here. The music in India is different from the music here. Last time I was in India, I preached at a, in India. I preached at a, a church that was very Pentecostal in their theology. So they had the Indian culture plus Pentecostalism at the same time. That was a wild service. <laughs> But you know what? I didn't get them. I didn't get up and get them and say to them, "No, you ought not to play that music when I'm here." No, of course, of course, I adapted the method to the culture, but not the message. Not the message. Not for one minute. You have to speak the truth because that's where the power of Christianity is: is in the message, not in the messenger. It's in the message. Oh, sure, you can, you can gather in India, in India, they do sometimes, in Africa too. They'll gather 10,000 people at a crusade. They'll put it in a soccer stadium. And somebody can come along and they can be as eloquent and powerful as they can possibly be. But you see the results of that preaching. And you see there really wasn't anything to the message. And you see starving people. You see people that have sat down at a banquet and eaten and walk away malnourished and starving. We accommodate methods but we never compromise the message. And that's Paul's message here. So the answer to the implied question, can we build this foundation on something else, intellectualism and philosophy, in this context, Paul says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid in Christ Jesus. That's the only foundation that will work. There are people today that won't mention sin in a sermon. Proud about it. Won't mention sin. If we look back at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the foundation that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture. That was His foundational message. I don't want to be negative either. But you cannot preach Christianity unless you deal with the sin problem. I don't believe in beating people over the head every week with the sin problem either. We go through whatever's in the passage. But we can't water down the message because we think it might be offensive to some people in our audience. You can't do it. You're not doing them a favor when that happens. You're hurting them. It's like having a spoiled child that throws an absolute fit in the grocery store, and in order to get them over throwing the fit, you buy them a candy bar and pat them on the back. That's probably not going to work. At the very least, you need to take them outside and say, listen, don't ever do that again. Don't ever do that again. But you don't reward the bad behavior by giving them something that's part of their rebellion. It doesn't work. Same way with Christians. and I'm, I'm sorry, same way with non-Christians. We need to give them the unadulterated Word of God. Pure Word of God. 
That's what they need. The foundation of any local church then will not be its music, its youth department, or its social life, as important as those things are. Would never knock those things. But there's something that's built on top of the foundation. They're not the foundation itself. The foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You take Jesus Christ out of Christianity, and you don't have Christianity. You take the cross out of Christianity, and you don't have Christianity. Paul trusted the crucified and the resurrected Jesus Christ to save him. It was by grace, through faith, apart from any human merit. Jesus did all the work. All the merit in Christianity belongs to him. Even our faith doesn't have merit. He did all the work. That's why we call it theologically non-meritorious faith. There's a reason for all these theological words. It's very significant. A building is more than its foundation. That which is built upon top of the foundation is important as well. So Paul goes on to talk about something that's built on top of the foundation. Now if any man, in verse 12, builds upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident. The gold, silver, and precious stones mentioned in verse 12 are, con are consistent with the solid quality of the foundation that's mentioned in verses 10 through 11. Solid foundation, solid building materials on top. I want to point out something here. It's not as though wood, hay, and straw have no value at all. But that value is insignificant compared to gold, silver, and precious stones. Paul laid a foundation, which was the gospel of Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. Then Apollos came in after Paul and built upon that foundation with solid biblical doctrinal truth. You remember what Paul's bringing this up for in the first place, the whole Paul and Apollos thing? Some people said, I'm not coming unless Paul's preaching. Other people said, I'm not coming unless Apollos is preaching. I prefer Paul. No, I prefer Apollos. And it's very likely that the people that preferred Paul were knocking Apollos. And the people that preferred Apollos were knocking Paul. And Paul says, time out, hold a minute, hold on a minute. King's X, we're not doing that anymore. You've got it all wrong. Each of us had our function. I came in and laid a foundation for you. Yes, Apollos' message was different. In today's example, you can say, yes, Apollos came in and built a strong youth department. He taught solid expositional sermons. He made sure the music was quality. Well, I like Paul better because he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. <laughs> Both are necessary. If you have a foundation with no building up on top of it, it doesn't do you very much good. The point that Paul's making first, though, is if you're going to build a building, build it with a strong foundation. And then when you build something on top of it, build that quality as well. We should do everything we do for the glory of God. Everything that happens in here ought to be the best we can give. And I'm not talking about 110% or 200%. Because you know what? You, I know they say that on television all the time. He's given 110%. You can't give 110%. 100 would be nice. If we could just give 100%, that's all of us. And that's what God wants. He wants a church that honors him. A church that honors him will be a church with a strong foundation of Jesus Christ and his gospel and then a strong structure that's not built with wood, hay, and straw 
but with gold, silver, and precious stones, something that's consistent with the foundation. In Corinth, they didn't know how good they had it. It's amazing. They, they had a church, this foundation was Jesus Christ that was laid by the Apostle Paul. Then they had solid doctrinal teaching by Apollos. And they're complaining. Complain more than any church in the ancient world. And Paul and Apollos were two of their preachers. The only church that I can think of that might have had a better all-star lineup might have been Ephesus. Boy, they had, they had one. They had Paul and John and Timothy at that church. But Corinth had something very special. And they were arguing. Paul saying, don't argue about this. You're missing the point entirely. Don't, don't start building up one messenger over another messenger. Everybody's got their place. Back a generation or so ago, in, in a lot of churches, Billy Graham was built up to the roof. And if the pastor didn't match up to Billy Graham, then somehow something was wrong with the pastor. Hold on a minute. Billy Graham wasn't a pastor. He was an evangelist. He came in and did his job to build a foundation of Jesus Christ. Billy Graham shouldn't be compared to the pastor. Same way today, say like someone like Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias comes into a church and preaches and leaves the next day. And the church may say, well, gosh, he, my, our pastor's not nearly as, as, as eloquent as Ravi Zacharias. Well, who is? I mean, really, today, who is? I remember one time I had a particular speaker come into the church. And he's a very eloquent guy. And I, you would remember if I said his name, but I don't want to embarrass him by saying that. And one of our members came to me and said, are you really sure you want to do that? <laughs> I said, yeah, he's a great guy. You're going to learn a lot from him. He said, yeah, but after he comes, I don't know anybody's going to want to listen to you. Anymore. <laughs> That's a true story. That's a true story. I'm not making that one up. Actually, I don't make any of them up. I've just had a colorful life. <laughs> got to stop all this is what Paul is saying. Apollos did his job. He followed up with solid doctrinal instruction. Gold, silver, and precious stones. It's pretty simple, really. People need to receive the free gift of eternal life by grace through faith. And then they need to learn the Word of God. And be encouraged to apply the Word of God on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. So it's all legitimate. The expression of that application in worship will be God-honoring music, solid youth department, fulfilling social life, as biblical truth is incorporated into every area. We should function in the nursery in biblical truth. That doesn't mean the kids in the nursery can, can learn it, but the, the people who work there can apply it. You see what I mean? Verses 13 through 15 Reference an event that Paul is going to bring up again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, our scripture reading this morning, the judgment seat of Christ. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved... Yet as though through fire. Before I talk about the judgment seat of Christ in the time that we have left here this morning, let me again remind you of the context, what's happening here. There's this argument. There's a bunch of fussing and fighting. There's a preference of one person over another person. And Paul's saying, wait a minute. 
God's the judge. It's a little presumptuous for us to be the evaluators of God's servants. Now, sometimes we have to, because to say, are they preaching the truth or are they not preaching the truth? And everybody's got their preferences. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the putting down of someone else. Just because they don't match up to our standards. So Paul says, okay, you don't have to worry about somebody getting ahead or somebody getting behind. Your guy, you know, people, if they're Apollos fans, they don't have to worry about Paul getting a little more reward in heaven than Apollos. Or if they're Paul fans, well, Apollos, it looks like he's going to get more reward. None of that. God's going to judge fairly. Each man's work, or we could say each person's work, at the judgment seat of Christ, both here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we find out that it's an individual thing. I, like you, have I've pictured how this might work out. I don't know if there's a line that stretches back for you know, several hundred miles of a believer standing in line to wait for the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know exactly how that would be. But we're all going to go up there by ourselves. You don't go up there with your pastor. You don't go up there as a church. You go up there just you and Jesus Christ. There's so many things in Christianity that are community, that are corporate. The judgment seat of Christ is an individual thing. You'll, go, you'll stand before your Savior eyeball to eyeball, and you'll look into those everlasting eyes, and he will evaluate you, and he'll evaluate you fairly. There's not going to be any nonsense. There's not going to be any lobbying for a grade. My son, my middle son, has a personality that just won't quit. Sometimes, though, he didn't want to put, when he was younger, he didn't want to put the work into some of the studies that he had, that was necessary for him to do as well as he would have liked to have done. That's not the way anymore, thank goodness. He's really turned it around, and he's making all A's as he finishes college. I'm really proud of him. But when Bruce was younger, he would take candy bars to the teacher. <laughs> and it worked for him. I've never seen anybody that it worked for like Bruce. But we would stop, because I would take him to his class. Oftentimes, we'd stop at the Chevron station. He'd say, I need to pull in here. What's the matter? I said, I need to get a couple Snickers bars. I don't, you know, I don't think Mom wants to eat that much sugar during class. So it's not for me. It's for the teacher. And it worked. But you're not going to be able to bring a Snickers bar in the pocket of your resurrection body cloak and hand it to Jesus and say, hey, listen, could I skip that quiz? No, you've got to take it. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. It's an individual thing. It's for believers only and will occur after the resurrection of the church, but before the second advent of Christ. If we did a timeline on earth, the, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be occurring in heaven at the same time that the tribulation and the great tribulation is happening here on earth. The judgment seat of Christ should not be confused with the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20. That's a totally different judgment. That judgment will occur at the end of the millennium. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers only. And there's only one thing that's at issue there. Has the person trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life? That's the only issue. <clears throat> that's the only issue there. But the judge, at, the, at the great white throne judgment, there's only one thing that's at issue. And that's whether the person has trusted Christ or not. And there's only one verdict there. And that's guilty. Because you're not going to be at the great white throne judgment unless you have already rejected 
Jesus Christ. And there's only one sentence, and that's condemnation to the lake of fire. It's a very sad thing. The judgment seat of Christ, on the other hand, is something totally different. Great white throne for unbelievers, judgment seat of Christ for believers. Two different things. At the judgment seat of Christ, everybody's saved. Great white throne, everybody's unsaved. Judgment seat of Christ, everybody's saved. The judgment seat of Christ occurs approximately a thousand years prior to the great white throne judgment. So there's a time difference as well. And the basis for judgment at the judgment seat of Christ will be the deeds done in the body whether they're good, agathos, or bad, phelos. Phelos could also be translated worthless, and it's probably better translated in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, as worthless. What did we do with the time that we're given? Did we spend the time that we're given glorifying God in our bodies, or did we spend the time that we're given not glorifying God? All of us are going to have to say, Well, we didn't spend all of our time glorifying God. Nobody did except for Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul didn't. Peter didn't. David and Moses didn't. Nobody has. Nobody's going to get a perfect score at the judgment seat of Christ. But there is a score that we all want to have. And it's not an A minus. It's not an A. It's not a B plus. It's this score. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you ruler over many things. That's so comforting to me. Did you catch that one phrase? You've been faithful in a few things. God knows us. He he knows us that we're not even going to be faithful in many, many, many things. Now, this is not an excuse for failure. It just shows us something of the love of Jesus Christ. And that which we're faithful through, he's going to reward us for. Nobody's perfect. One interesting thing about the judgment seat of Christ is I can't find anywhere where sins per se are mentioned at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, maybe sin in general in the sense that, well, Bruce, I gave you this giftedness. I gave you this opportunity. And you really wasted most of it. Now, perhaps something like that might be said. But in terms of specific sins, I remember when you did that. No, that's not going to be mentioned at the judgment seat of Christ. That's been dealt with at the cross. The blood of Christ was applied to your account when you trusted him. So that's not what it is. But it's faithfulness. On the whole, what did you do with the time that you were given? Did you waste it in selfishness? Or did you serve in selflessness? That seems to be the basis. Now back to this. That's the basis in general. Paul's talking about specifically two people here, himself and Apollos. But it certainly applies to all of us. Each man's work will become evident. In context, the each man is Paul and Apollos. But we know from this passage and First Corinthians or Second Corinthians chapter five, it includes all of us. Each man will become each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it. You can hide things in the darkness. But the better the light, the better you can see. I like most of you need to a lot of you anyway need to use readers at night. I found, though, that the better the light, the less I have to use the readers. If the light's really, really good, I can do without them sometimes. Because the light illuminates. And there'll be perfect illumination on each one of our lives. Some of you out there may be squirming a little bit right now. I don't know if I want my life illuminated. Well, then change it. Starting today, change it. Because it's going to be illuminated. 
And we've had fair warning. There is a test at the end of this. There's an evaluation, rather, at the end of this life. This is not one of, like one of those courses where you can just do what you want to, say what grades you want, and then turn it in. No, there will be an evaluation at the end. And we all know about it. So let's do something about it. If you have two or three days left, you can still do something about it. It doesn't have to be a total waste. Do the best you can with the time that you've been given, realizing that it's not going to be perfect. So the day will evaluate it. And then it's going to be revealed. And the, the revelation, the evaluation along with the revelation is going to be perfect. In this metaphor, he uses fire. And fire burns up that which is imperfect. But the gold, silver, and precious stones stay behind. That's all that's going to be left over after the judgment seat of Christ. If there is a platform, I don't know that there is, but if there is a platform and we walk up there and we have our conversation with Jesus, know this. That by the time that we walk off, not a negative thing will ever be said again for all eternity. It's all done. It's burned up. It's only going to be positive after that. And again, I don't believe that, there's, that there is any um, sin per se mentioned. But Paul does talk about the possibility of shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Momentary shame. And again, shame that's over with by the time you walk off that stage. But who wants any shame at all before the Lord who sought us, saved us, and keeps us by His grace on a daily basis? Why would I want to be ashamed in front of Him? He gave us everything. Wouldn't it make sense for us to be faithful in a few things? The few things that He's given us, relatively speaking to what He did. And I think that's what part of that few is. Compared to what he did, he's not asking us to do anything. It should be noted here, too, that no one's salvation is at stake at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, there may be loss. Look at verse 15. If any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. Let's say you do have an evaluation. And I hope you don't. But let's say you do have an evaluation where Jesus says, No, I burned up all this stuff and there's nothing left. I don't, I don't really think that's going to happen to hardly anybody, but it's theoretically possible. If you've got the Holy Spirit, one would think that there would be some production in your life that's some, something of good, even if it was just a good thought or two or ten. But let's just say that there was loss at the judgment seat of Christ. The loss is a loss of reward, not a loss of salvation. Your salvation is secure. He shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved as through fire. It may be a rocky road for a few minutes, but you're not going to lose your salvation at the judgment seat of Christ. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Things to come. No future judgment shall be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The idea of reward in heaven, to me, is one of the mysteries of heaven. The Bible speaks of it. I accept it. I'm not saying I totally understand it. Because when we get to heaven, even those who suffer loss are going to be in a place of no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. The old things have passed away. And technically, that passage comes after the judgment seat of Christ. No more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more sorrow. The old things have passed away. It's a place of perfect happiness. But on top of perfect happiness, God has found a way to reward those who have been faithful to Him. 
and praise God for that. Only he could figure out a way to do that. In this specific context, once more, Paul is speaking about him and Apollos, himself and Apollos. But in the broader context, you and I are included in this. We only go around once. With all due respect to my reincarnation friends that may hear this tape someday, we only we all go around once. That's the Christian message, and we need to do the best we can with what we have. David Livingston, the missionary, has been quoted as saying, Only when life twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. C.T. Studd, a missionary to China and India, and then Africa, after hearing of that quote, wrote these words. And I leave you with this today. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave and God's holy will to cleave. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its days I must fulfill, living for self or for his will. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only when life will soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep, in joy or sorrow thy word to keep, faithful and true whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. O oh, let me love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. One life, yes, only one, now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last.